0: Hello, this is Matt Pennington of Radio Free Asia. Welcome to South China Sea Currents, our weekly look at developments in the South China Sea. Today is the 25th in our series of weekly podcasts, and sadly, the last that will feature Drake Long, the South China Sea reporter for RFA and Bernard News. Drake is moving on to fresh fields. So, we thought that this week we'd have a bit of a retrospective. Not really revisiting RFA's greatest hits, but reviewing through Drake's eyes what's been happening in the South China Sea during his reporting stint this past year. What trends have emerged and what might those trends tell us about the future of this global hotspot? So, Drake, we'll be sorry to see you go.
1: Yeah, uh, it's a bittersweet feeling. Yeah, it, it's a, it's a bitter in the sense that, you know, also I'm sad to go. I've worked with some amazing people at Radio Free Asia, yourself included, obviously. Doing this podcast has been a blast. It's been a real treat. But leaving is also sweet in the sense that the South China Sea reporting at Ready for Asia has gotten so great uh, since I first joined. And I think that it's definitely going to outlive me, you know, way past the time that I'm gone. And I honestly can't wait to see where it goes from here uh, without yeah. me at the helm.
0: That sounds uh, very optimistic. You've certainly had a good run. You've broken lots of stories and written on the South China Sea at a time of mounting tension there and there's been a lot of activity on the diplomatic front as well.
1: Yeah, I think it's time to pass the torch, so to speak, and I'm excited to see where it goes from here.
0: So what do you see as the key themes that you've picked up on in in your reporting? Maybe we could turn first to the main protagonist, China.
1: It depends on who you talk to. Uh, They probably wouldn't call China the protagonist, but definitely the main actor. I mean, over the past nine, ten months that I've been covering the South China Sea, we've seen China grow far more aggressive in the South China Sea than I think a lot of people anticipated. I don't think it's a coincidence that when I first started tracking things, I would see a Chinese Coast Guard ship fairly often where it's not supposed to be in the South China Sea, pressing China's claims. But what has changed over the past nine months is that instead of seeing you know one ship or two ships focusing on one country at a time, China has expanded to basically have Coast Guard ships and maritime militia ships Everywhere, all the time, in every single piece of disputed territory in the South China Sea. I mean, if I looked at it on any given day, it was remarkable to see Coast Guard ships at Vanguard Bank, which is within Vietnamese waters, at Scarborough Shoal, which is in Philippine waters, and then at Leucomia Shoals, which is in Malaysian waters. It's completely changed China's perception as, you know, selectively pushing at different claimants in the South China Sea to basically just doing a full court press against everybody all at once. And I mean, part of that is we're seeing more ships, period. They've been newly constructed for the China Coast Guard or the maritime militia. Part of it seems to be doctrine, strategy, whatever you want to call it. China is getting rhetorically much more aggressive over the South China Sea. And I think that just the growth in output that China has economically and militarily just means China is more bold these days. They, they, they seem to have, over the past nine months or so, been able to just flood the area with ships, try to enforce jurisdiction, so to speak, in all these different creative ways that was uh, definitely not there when I first started.
0: I mean, do you think this is a question of, you know, increased capacity on the part of China, or is there a sort of strategic intent behind, you know, this full-court press, as you refer to it?
1: Well, I come back to time and time again. We've written a couple pieces on this, but the subject of jurisdiction. So ever since 2016, that was when the uh, Permanent Court of Arbitration, they looked at the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, and they looked at China's claims in the South China Sea and said, China's claims don't make any sense under international law. So that's been the sticking point among Southeast Asian states, uh, among the U.S., among China since that point, is they all say... China does not have valid claims to the South China Sea under international law. China, since that time, appears to have figured out that there's other ways of enforcing jurisdiction over an area to the point where even if it's not recognized that China owns the South China Sea, you know, if you get Filipino fishermen or Vietnamese Coast Guard ships to respect the China Coast Guard in the South China Sea, like respect that they can't go into certain areas basically respect China's jurisdiction over those waters, that is tantamount to de facto uh, control, de facto jurisdiction over the entire area, even if it's not supported by international law. And I mean, just in my reporting, I've seen China use this phrase jurisdictional waters to refer to the South China Sea far more than nine months ago or 10 months ago. They, they consistently stressed the phrase, you know, we maybe don't own these waters or we don't really have to be totally clear about what we mean when we say we claim these waters, but we basically set the rules in this area. And I think the China Coast Guard presence is indicative of that. They're, they're enforcing in China's mind China's rules on the South China Sea. And other countries, whether they want to admit it or not, are respecting those boundaries just because, you know, they don't want to get hurt. It's it's right. been very worrying.
0: It's it's kind of like the idea that possession is nine tenths of the law.
1: Yeah, definitely. That's how I'd put it.
0: Yeah. They're just changing the reality on the ground, and other countries have got to pay heed to that. But what's the diplomatic price that China is is paying for this muscular and, and assertive approach?
1: Well, I mean, you have uh, a lot of Southeast Asian countries, you know, Vietnam, the Philippines, Malaysia, Indonesia, some other countries like Singapore, for example, that aren't claiming to the South China Sea, but are, you know, they're they're concerned about the situation, are souring on China's actions in the South China Sea, um, Fred. That's one thing that's definitely played out over the past 10 months is they're concerned that China seems to be taking the South China Sea claims very seriously. They seem to actually want to claim their territory, these rocks or whatnot. So a lot of Southeast Asian countries are weighing their relationship with China uh, versus basically this, this territorial integrity issue. And I think that in some countries like Malaysia and Indonesia, what we've seen is that ultimately they don't really care that much about the South China sea. Like it matters to them, but the economic relationship with China is so powerful that they just can't bring themselves to really take a firm stance on these sorts of things. But other countries like Vietnam and the Philippines have had a incredible convergence with the United States and other outside stakeholders trying to call attention to the South China sea dispute because they feel much more of a threat. I mean, you could not have, this is going to sound very mean, but you couldn't have a more pro-China government in the Philippines right now. It's President Rodrigo Duterte, in the entire time that I've been reporting on this, has gone back and forth between, you know, we don't need the U.S. anymore, China's our friend. And then the South China Sea issue, time and time again, seems to pull the Philippines back to the neutral position of, well, actually, we do need the U.S. Uh, we do need the United States for this, because China is getting very aggressive in the South China Sea. We need commitments to ensure our uh, territorial integrity. So I think it has made a lot of Southeast Asian countries reassess the relationship with China. I don't think they had a lot of illusions beforehand, but they now view the South China Sea as a much more risky sort of situation to get involved with. And I think it's really hurt Southeast Asian unity and that we've seen a flurry of notes from other countries outside of the area, like India, Australia, the United States, Germany, France, the United Kingdom, and now the Netherlands, they're all weighing in on the South China Sea dispute now and very much against China's position on the matter. There's a lot of concern from outside countries that China's behavior there is threatening global trade, global issues. It's no longer local. So outside of the claimants, China has seen this massive, massive downturn in relations. And it's kind of easy to see why, because when you try to enforce jurisdiction over a waterway like this, countries outside of the area start to kind of wake up and say, you know, that's not good for us. It's not just a matter of Southeast Asia. It's not a local issue. You know, it's not just about rocks. It's about trade. It's about order. It's about uh, security. It's It's been very interesting.
0: Right. And I guess they can see that China is playing a very long game in the South China Sea. I think something that's been revealed in some of your reporting, not just about the, you know, the comings and goings of vessels from the Coast Guard and maritime militia, but things related to the way it's building up infrastructure on islands.
1: Yes, definitely. I mean, the other thing that we've seen over this time is that China's made these little spits of sand, these little islands in the South China Sea, livable in ways that we didn't really think was possible. We saw Woody Island get upgraded basically to prefectural status China created two local government districts to cover the Paracel Islands and the Spratly Islands. They call them Shisha and Nansha, respectively. China has put marine police on its islands. We're seeing, um, you know, renewable energy get set up on the smaller islets. We're seeing submarine cables get set up for communication. 5G networks. Uh, better living quarters for soldiers garrisoned there. And then in a lot of cases, you have a lot of civilians that are living on those islands now, too. Um, I think we talked about Drummond Island in one piece. There is a working committee there from the Communist Party, and they have uh, fairly decent living standards now. You have this greening project that seems to show that China is investing a lot into scientific research to make sure that these islands can stay in the South China Sea and function as bases or settlements way into the future. I mean, a lot of people were very skeptical that these islands would amount to anything when they first got built up because people said, you know, there'd be environmental damage or they'd get wrecked by a storm, or you know they're not defensible. And what we've seen is China has defied that common sense time and time again, building them up into real military bases, implanting civilians there, giving them all the infrastructure necessary to be another Chinese city, But, you know, like thousands upon thousands upon thousands of miles away from their shores in the middle of the ocean that is disputed. And no other claimant in the South China Sea has been able to do that. And I don't think many people thought it would be feasible or even sane for China to attempt what they did in building up these little islands. The four big ones are Fiery Cross Reef, Woody Island, Subi Reef and Mischief Reef. But just the littlest islands are also getting built up into something much bigger a much more cohesive kind of whole.
0: Right. So China's clearly plowing a lot of resources into developments in the South China Sea. You're listening to South China Sea Currents. So let's turn then to the role of the U.S. Now, the Trump administration has taken an increasingly tough approach toward China on the South China Sea. Maybe you can speak a little bit about your observations on, on that.
1: Yeah. So The U.S.-China relationship in general over the past 10 months has not been great. It's been a downturn for a number of reasons. Hong Kong, China's position over the self-governing island of Taiwan, trade issues, which the Trump administration has been very hawkish on, and the South China Sea as well. We've seen the U.S. update its South China Sea stance, its position on the disputes for the first time in years to say unequivocally, China does not have lawful claims within other countries' waters They've even named individual islets and said China cannot claim those, it's not legal, uh, aligning the U.S. with the 2016 Permanent Court of Arbitration ruling. We have seen other things like much more robust military exercise in the South China Sea uh, that clearly agitate China in some very interesting ways. The Quad, for example, has become much more, I don't want to say operational, But there's been more of an effort to kind of shove the quad, India, Australia, the U.S. and Japan, that grouping of four democracies in China's face and say, you know, we're working together in the South China Sea. We're doing uh, maybe not joint patrols, but we're doing exercises nearby the area. We saw the U.S. intervene very, very publicly in the West Capella incident in Malaysian waters where China was trying to intimidate an oil rig there. I mean, you had the U.S. Navy sail within... Uh, less than a nautical mile of an oil rig that China was harassing, trying to send a strong signal. Ultimately, uh, that didn't really amount to much. But the fact that the US tried anything is kind of telling in itself. So you, ha- you have the South China Sea as another area where the US China relationship has kind of deteriorated. And you see a much more confrontational posture by both sides. And I don't think it's a coincidence that China has started doing these military drills in the South China Sea too. For the first time, they did a military drill among the Parasau Islands and cordoned off an area of it to uh, shipping traffic. And they've done it like four times since the first time. So, you know, they've done more exercises in that area this year than they have any year in the past, which I think is a very good benchmark to kind of keep in mind as we see the U.S. and China butt heads more and more there.
0: Right. I mean, we've definitely seen, you know, a shift in the past year from the U.S. administration viewing China as an adversary rather than just as a a sort of strategic competitor. To what extent do you think the change in policy in the South China Sea will endure? And and to what extent is it sort of based on principle as opposed to just a a reflection of a a broader deterioration in ties between Washington and Beijing?
1: I think it is a matter of principle. I do think it's going to hold. When I say hold, I mean, I think that the U.S. is going to be paying a lot more attention to the South China Sea in the coming years, um, solely because things have gotten worse there for the claimants, and things have gotten worse there in terms of China's position on the subject, not better. The U.S. position has always been that they're worried about freedom of navigation in the South China Sea. What they mean by that is they don't want any country to enforce sole jurisdiction over such a broad area of ocean. That is a key waterway for trade, because that in itself could threaten trade if there's a conflict. And I don't think that position is going away anytime soon. If anything, China has kind of confirmed everybody's worst fears by building up its military infrastructure in the area, conducting some very high profile drills and showing different countries that while China is first and foremost concerned about keeping trade routes open for itself, you know, these other practices like economic coercion, Uh, nationalist embargoes or whatnot that China does shows that China wants to keep those trade routes open sometimes at other countries' expense if there's a conflict. That's the real threat. And I think that that's kind of the principle that the U.S. is worried about, and the U.S. is finding a much more amicable audience for that sort of attitude abroad. Um, India and the U.S. don't see eye-to-eye on a lot of things, but they see eye-to-eye on the South China Sea. Australia and the U.S. have gotten much closer, mostly because of the South China Sea issue, that trade issue. Japan, the US, European countries are starting to wade into it. You're seeing this chorus of voices ever since December of 2019, kind of speak up all at once and say the same refrain of we want freedom of navigation. We want freedom of overflight. We don't want trade to be disrupted in the South China Sea. We're worried about the destabilization of that area. And those concerns aren't going to go away. If anything, they're going to get amplified by more actors in this coming administration, uh, the Biden administration. So I think there's going to be pressure on them to really stay the course on confronting China over the South China Sea. The thing that I am interested to see is that if they move any further towards clarifying the U.S. position on disputes there, like I said, uh, the Trump administration in July changed the whole U.S. policy of the South China Sea to say definitively that some of China's claims are illegal um, and to stay away from like a lot of the territorial claims, but to make a lot of statements on the maritime claims, claims to the waters there. I want to know if the Biden administration is going to move that forward or all, or if that's basically as far as it's gonna go, because it's removing more ambiguity. We just had a piece, uh, my last piece published with RFA, actually, that was looking at 70 years of US policy in the South China Sea, that trend, is for more specificity and a more firm U.S. commitment on the South China Sea to its allies like the Philippines, to other countries like Vietnam, to concepts like freedom of navigation overflight. Those things always move forward. They never go backwards. They never get more ambiguous. They always move forward in more specificity. So I think a Biden administration is going to face a lot of pressure to maybe clarify its position on more disputes there, maybe to align closer with the 2016 Permanent Court of Arbitration decision And generally not cede the jurisdiction of that zone to China. I think the deterioration of U.S.-China relations in the South China Sea was kind of overdue. And I think it was going to happen regardless of who was in office just because of things China has done in that zone. And those sorts of actions are going to continue well into the future. I mean, I don't see them slowing down.
0: I guess this leads to, you know, perhaps the concluding question. And this is actually a question that I think you addressed in an article a few months ago, but what are the prospects of a conflict breaking out? I mean, particularly between the US and China, I guess we we generally see that there's been an increase in tensions in the past nine months or a year or whatever, but to what extent? Do you think it's legitimate to fear that there could be a shooting war in the South China Sea?
1: Well, when I, when I think about this, when I first started like nine, ten months ago, if you had asked me the same question, I would say very clearly um, there's no risk of conflict. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, both sides kind of know to stay abreast of each other. Even the other claimants that some people might think are a little bit more hot-headed, like Vietnam, which gets quite aggressive with China and the South China Sea, they know what lines not to cross. And China itself has no interest in starting a shooting war in the South China Sea over what are essentially rocks. But since that time, we have seen China arm its Coast Guard ships more explicitly. They've built more maritime militia ships that are acting much more aggressively. We've seen US China communication break down in a lot of uh, worrying kind of ways. There's not many crisis communication hotlines left from people I've talked to. You see China with this unending uh, nationalist fervor, discuss the South China Sea. And you start to understand that as much as the South China Sea looks like a barren kind of wasteland, just like watered rocks, China does see it as integral part of its territory. They treat it that way. All the official statements keep emphasizing that. The military keeps emphasizing that. The actions that they do are towards exercising effective jurisdiction within the nine-dash line. And I don't see how it's possible to keep moving forward on doing that without eventually causing a massive incident. You know, A-Law 2014, A-Law 2011, you know, previous instances where the China Coast Guard has really gotten into it uh, with surrounding claimants. I don't see how you can avoid some massive conflict springing up if this aggressive behavior keeps going. Maybe not necessarily between the U.S. and China, but between another claimant in China for sure. You know, I think a lot back to, we had a previous episode we talked about the the EP3 incident in 2001 in Hainan. Was that when it was? Do you know what I'm talking about, the surveillance flight? I do,
0: yeah, that was right, 2001, I believe.
1: And we talked about that, and you mentioned that, you know, you were working at that time when that happened. I mean, what was that incident even like, just on the outside?
0: Right, I mean, at the start of the Bush administration and the U.S. spy plane was intercepted by the Chinese. Um, A Chinese plane, I think, crashed, and the U.S. spy plane was forced on the, onto Hainan, right, for for an extended period. Yeah. I, do, I don't think people felt that there was going to be a war at that point, but it was definitely a diplomatic crisis. I don't think there was a, a, a thought that there was going to be armed conflict, but I think it showed the potential of what could happen. But I guess now we have a sense that, as you referred to, that do they have the communications between the two militaries, between Washington and Beijing to resolve that kind of crisis.
1: Yeah, exactly. I was thinking about it because when that incident happened, you know, U.S.-China relations were in a pretty good place. The U.S. was going to get China into like the World Trade Organization, stuff like that. We were partners in a lot of aspects. There was trust there on a number of things. So the threat of that becoming a conflict or even a war was probably pretty low But now you have far more military assets flying close to each other. You have far more ships operating very close to each other. And if an incident like that occurred again, like you're pointing out, I don't think the communication would be there. And more importantly than that, I don't think the trust is there anymore. There would be much more pressure kind of at the ground level to treat it as, you know, maybe the opening salvo of some type of conflict or much wider incident that could suck in other claimants. And if anything, the stakes have only gotten higher uh, with the way China presses on U.S. allies like the Philippines, with the way that other countries like Indonesia and India are starting to get affected by the behavior in the South China Sea. So I think that the chance for conflict has gotten much higher than I am comfortable with. But that's just from, you know, my perspective of reporting on this for the short time that I have. Um, It's something that I wouldn't like, keeps me up a little bit at night, and it will keep me up at night for many nights after this. But I think that it's good to, for any viewer out there, for any listener out there, just to take stock of the situation, you know, know what's going on and kind of understand all the details of the South China Sea and figure out how some backwater, you know, ocean with rocks and guano and all this sort of nonsense uh, became this massive international flashpoint.
0: Yeah, I guess we have to see if there is less confrontational turn in relations between US and China when uh, US administration takes office. Anyway, that brings our South China Sea Currents podcast to a close. Of course, we will return in the coming weeks. We'll begin a new series of podcasts that will focus not just on the South China Sea, but events across Southeast Asia as covered by Radio Free Asia. In the meantime, you can revisit past editions of South China Sea Currents on Spotify or iTunes and on the websites of RFA and Banar News. That's rfa.org and banarnews.org. So it just remains for for me to say thank you to Drake for all your efforts in reporting for Radio Free Asia and Banar News.
1: And thank you, Matt, for being a fantastic editor, for being a great podcast co-host. And I just want to say to everybody out there, you know, Radio Free Asia has some great people doing some amazing work on things other than the South China Sea. Please check it out. Some great stuff exposing some really important issues in the world. Thanks a lot,
0: Drake. I'm Matt Pennington with Radio Free Asia with Drake Long. This podcast series is created by Leo Kim and produced by Radio Free Asia. Thanks for listening and please join us again soon.